Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. morning in Romans 4, so turn to the book of Genesis, Genesis 12. Paul is continuing to write in Romans 4, he's continuing to write to the Roman church, but he is writing particularly to the Jewish contingent in the early parts of the letter, and has been demonstrating to them, as we saw last week, that salvation without the works of the law, the righteousness of God, was now manifest, made obvious, made apparent through faith in Jesus Christ, completely undermining everything that the Jewish religion said about keeping the law and about justification through works. He went so far as to continue the Jew-Gentile distinction by saying that Those that were circumcised, the Jews, 
were going to be saved by faith, and that the Gentiles, those that were uncircumcised, would be saved through faith. That ultimately, faith, which is why we sang so many songs this morning about faith, ultimately, faith in Jesus Christ is the way that we get the righteousness of God. Last week, I defined the righteousness of God. Do you remember what the definition was? There is only one thing equal with the righteousness of God, and that is the righteousness of God. Is that too complicated? Is that clear enough for you? Only the righteousness of God is comparable with the righteousness of God, and you simply don't have that righteousness. You're certainly nowhere near the righteousness of God. You're incapable of establishing your own righteousness. And so God had to do what only God could do. And last week we saw how he made Jesus Christ the helisterion, how he made him the mercy seat, made him the covering, made him the sacrifice, made him the victim so that we all would not undergo the wrath of God because God propitiated his own wrath through the death of his son. In other words, God propitiated himself. That's all review from last week. But now, in chapter 4, Paul is going to begin showing the Jews that even their own scripture, even the law and the prophets, even what we call the Old Testament, has always taught that righteousness comes as a result of faith. That human beings cannot establish their own righteousness, and that even the law of Moses came after Abraham had been declared righteous because of his faith. Abraham believed God. That is the Hebrew word aman. It's the word from which we get amen. Basically, Abraham amened God. God told Abraham, as we're going to read this morning, told him a particular promise. You're going to have a child. You and Sarah, though you're both past childbearing years, nevertheless, you are going to have a child of promise, and through him, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. We know that as the Abrahamic covenant. So turn to Genesis 12, and we're going to look at the first telling of the Abrahamic covenant. Because you need to know this. The people that Paul was writing to in Rome, the Jewish contingent of the church at Rome, already knew this. They knew all this history. And they knew their scripture. We, 21st century Gentiles, are not raised with the knowledge of the common history of Judaism. Jews inherently, especially the Jews in Rome who were still attached to Jerusalem when the temple of Herod was still standing, they really understood their cultural heritage and history much more so than we do. And so Paul could write to them in a sort of shorthand. He could write to them and just casually quote things out of the Abrahamic covenant, and it would resonate with them. They would understand it as, oh, yes, that's what God promised our forefather. That's the covenant that God made with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. So the Abrahamic covenant that we're about to read out of Genesis 12 is repeated seven times in the book of Genesis. But it's repeated to Abraham a couple of times. Then it's repeated to his son. Then it's repeated to his son. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob all get the same promise, which is through your heritage, through your offspring, is going to come the one, the seed of Abraham, through whom all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Not just Jews, but the Gentile world as well is all going to be blessed through this particular seed of Abraham, who Paul identifies as being Christ in particular. It is through Christ, the seed of Abraham, the son of Abraham, the progeny of Abraham. Through him, all the families of the earth can be blessed through faith in Christ and his finished work. 
So let's read the first telling of the Abrahamic covenant. Chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse the one who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old, and he departed Haran. Here's the first place where we see Abraham's faith. God has just said to him, leave your father's house, leave your country, leave everything you're familiar with, start walking. I'm going to give you a land. Just start heading that direction. I'll let you know when you get there. And he did it. Abraham up and left. Abraham started walking, family in tow, telling them, well, God just told me to start walking, start traveling, and he was going to show me a land, and then he's going to give me that land, and it's going to be mine and my posterity in perpetuity, and God is making a covenant here, a promise to Abraham, a one-sided promise, a one-sided covenant. Notice that Abraham so far has not been required to do anything in order for God to keep the promise. God just simply says, this is my promise to you. You're going to have a child through your children. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And that is God's positive declaration that he's absolutely going to do this. Flip forward to chapter 15. This is the second telling of the Abrahamic covenant. God is going to expand on it a little bit. Now, the reason we're reading these things is because Paul is going to say these things in Romans 4. And when he brings them up in Romans 4, you have to be familiar with it because his audience that he was writing to was already familiar with it. So, chapter 15 of Genesis says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Abram is going to argue with God since God keeps making this promise to him and saying, you're going to have a child and through your seed, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Abram's going to argue with God and say, have you noticed that I have like no children so far? And you keep telling me that we're going to have these numerous children like sands of the sea, like stars of the heaven that my offspring are going to be so great, they're going to be innumerable. And so far, I have none. Have you noticed that part? So God is going to promise that he's going to have a child with Sarah, and that child of promise is going to be the particular progeny through which all these promises go, which is why God tells Abram, in Isaac, in that particular son, all the promises are going to flow through Isaac. Through Isaac shall thy seed be called. And that's really important to New Testament Pauline theology. That it is through Isaac, not through the slave woman, not through Ishmael, the child of the slave woman. That's not where the promises are going to flow. The promises are going to flow through Isaac, through Jacob, through Israel, until he narrows it down to the tribe of Judah. And then finally, to Jesus, through him, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Chapter 15 says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Eliezer of Damascus was the head of Abram's household, but he was just an indentured servant. He was a hired hand. 
And he said, since I have no children, Eliezer is going to inherit everything that I have. And you keep making me promises that through my progeny, through my seed, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. But I don't have any children. There's just this Eliezer who's going to inherit everything. So what will you give me? Verse 3, and Abram said, since thou hast given me no offspring... One who's born in my house is now my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man shall not be your heir, but one shall come forth from your own body, and he shall be your heir. So God took Abram outside and said to him, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Verse 6, then he, Abram, amoned God, believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, reckoned it to him as righteousness. So where does righteousness come from? Since we have already said the righteousness of God is something that you absolutely don't have. Where does righteousness come from? Well, all the way back here at Abram, it was reckoned to him. It was imputed to him. The concept of imputation is very, very important to understand all the way through the Bible. There are three great imputations in the Bible. The first of them is that when you are born, Adam's sin is imputed to you. There are some theologies out there that say, well, that's not fair. That's what Pelagianism basically is. It says that all men are born essentially neutral. We don't have Adam's sin on us. And then our relative righteousness or sinfulness is determined by what we do here in this life. But the Bible says you're born a sinner. You come out of the womb sinning. The Bible says that babies come out of the womb speaking lies. Do any mothers want to testify? It is true that human beings are sinful from their youth. As a consequence, the only place that you can get righteousness is if Adam's sin is imputed to you, but then because of your faith in Christ, your sins are imputed to Christ. When he died on Calvary, your sins were carried away utterly and completely. He's a perfect Savior who saves perfectly. He's a complete Savior who saves completely. All your sinfulness, all your wretchedness, all your depravity was carried away when Christ died as the helasterion, as the propitiation for your sin. But then the third great imputation, and I think this is the really good one, is that his righteousness is imputed to you. His righteousness is put on your account. And what Paul's about to argue in the book of Romans is, that's how righteousness has always come. Look at Abraham. All the way back at the beginning, Abram believed God And God imputed to him, counted to him, credited him, reckoned to him that he was righteous for the mere fact that he believed God. Now, what did God tell him? Did God tell him, someday my son is going to come and my son's going to die and uh, faith in Christ is what you need to have in order to be completely righteous? Is that what God told him? No, it's not. Actually, what he told him was, you're going to have a child. You and your wife, you're going to have an heir coming out of your own body. That's what God told him. Through your seed, starting with that baby, through your seed, the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Abraham said, amen. That was basically the content of his faith. His faith was whatever God said to him. He believed it. God gave him righteousness for it. Now that tells us something very important about faith. 
It tells us that our faith needs to be rooted and grounded in whatever God has told us. And what God has told us so far can be found right here in this word. And in this word, he has told us, I have sent my son, and he has died in your place. And he is the methodology through which you achieve righteousness. If you believe that, if you actually believe and accept that your righteousness is nothing, that like Isaiah said, all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. If you accept that you have nothing to bring to God, but you accept that faith in Christ will establish you eternally in heaven and get you everlasting righteousness, that faith, that belief in what God has said will be credited to you for righteousness. Now you can sit there and stare at me, but that's the best news you ever heard in your silly little life. Amen. To hear that faith in Christ will get you eternity, that you stand in front of the judge of ages and you don't fry, and you don't get it based on you, because, hey, I know some of you. And I know that if it's based on you, you're not going to make it. It can't be based on you. It has to be based on God being really good to you and accounting your sinfulness and depravity to Christ and accounting your faith as righteousness. And that is why we call it grace. That is why we say it is just the kindness and the goodness of God. Because, trust me, if it was left up to you, and you know this is true, if it was left up to you, you'd be judging people based on who they were, what they were like, and how they reacted to you. You'd be basing it on what have you done and how do I react to what you've done. God based it on grace. God based it on long-suffering. God based it on, I'll give you righteousness if you'll just have faith in my son. Okay, now, with that basis in the Abrahamic covenant, we can now turn to the book of Romans. That was indeed all introduction. And for our visitors this morning, introductions don't count against my time, just so you know. So that later, if you're looking at your watch, you'll go, oh, that's right, we had an introduction. That's right. Chapter 4, starting at verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? Okay, so Paul is rooting his argument now in Abraham. And what exactly did Abraham learn? What did Abraham come to understand? If Abraham, verse 2, if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something that he can boast about. Abraham could say, yeah, I did it. In fact, any of us could say that. We could say, I did it. We could say to God, you and I, Together, cooperatively, synergistically, you and I got me saved. And we'd have something to boast about. We'd be able to say, just move over on that throne a little bit. I'll be sharing it with you because it took both of us cooperatively to get me saved, but I did my bit. If Abraham was justified before God because of the good things he did, which, by the way, was the common Jewish thinking the thinking was that Abraham was justified because he did things. Paul is arguing, no, it's not what he did, it's what he believed. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something that he can boast about, but not before God. Before God, no one gets to boast. Before God, no one gets to say, I did it. Because what does the scripture say? This is why we went back and read it. What does the scripture say? It says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. The same words we just read out of Genesis. So Paul is pulling his theology here straight from the Old Testament. He's demonstrating to the Jews at Rome 
that his theology is not a novelty. It's not something that he's made up. It's something that is rooted and grounded in what the Bible has already said. And what the Bible has already said at the beginning of God's relationship with Abraham, at the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant, at the beginning of God making promises unilaterally to Abraham, all the way back there, righteousness was by faith. And so Paul's saying it's the same way now. You can't work your way. You can't law your way. You can't justify your way. You can't self-justify your way. You cannot obligate God by your works. As we've been on Wednesday nights looking at the book of Job, God asked piercing questions to Job, like, whoever gave anything to me that I have to pay him back? Whoever gave me something so good that I would have to recompense him? How am I in debt to anyone? Well, that's Paul's theology through and through because it was Job's theology through and through. Paul understands that you simply cannot indebt God by anything you do. It can't be a matter of works. It has to be a matter of faith. So much so now that he's going to say, Now, to the one who does work, to the one who follows the law, to the one who keeps the Ten Commandments, follows all the ordinances, to the one who follows everything that Moses wrote, to the one who does works, his payment, his wage, is not reckoned as grace. It's not reckoned as favor from God. Instead, it's a payment. It's what's due. Here, let's try this out. This will make it easier so you can understand what Paul's saying. Um, So it's the end of the week, Micah. You've worked all week. You've worked for Kellen all week, right? You get to the end, and it's payday. And you show up, and he says, Oh, uh, I've decided not to pay you. I'm just going to accept your work, and thanks very much. Are you going to show up the next day? No, we really appreciate it. We appreciate your work so far, but, you know, we're we're not going to pay you. No. No, you go to work every day. You get up every day and leave April to go do work because you're going to get paid. You know you're going to get paid. That's why you're doing it. It's a fairly mercenary tactic. You get up every day and you go to work in the hope that someone will pay you for whatever it is that you end up doing that day. And so Paul is saying, that's the same way in the relationship between you and God. If you've done the work, and then he pays you because you did the work, well, that's not grace. That's a payment. That's a debt from God. But, and hold on close to this phrase, but to the one who does no work. You got that? To the one who has nothing to his credit. Now let me be very clear because every once in a while when people hear me say this, they uh, throw out wild accusations. I am not saying that Christians do not do good works. We do. The Bible says so. We do the good works that we were ordained to walk in. That's Paul's language. We are certainly called to be loving and kind and gracious and helpful people. We are certainly called to walk in good works. But the good works we do can't save us. So here's the equation. We do good works, but the good works don't save us. We do the good works because we're saved. Because Christ has done the work of saving us, we then have the impetus. We then have the reason, the rationale to go out and be good to other people because God has been phenomenally good to us. And that becomes our inspiration for doing good to other people. But if you think your good works, no matter what they are, no matter what work it is, if you think some amount of your good work is actually achieving some kind of standing with God that will achieve your eternal justification, you genuinely have the cart before the horse because you're thinking that your good works are earning you something. 
which is why Paul says, but to the one who does not work, it's an emphatic, one who does not work at all, nothing, no works, nothing. You're carrying nothing to God in your hands. Instead, you show up with empty hands and plead the grace of God and faith in Christ. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, Anybody here want to admit that you qualify for the category ungodly? Present. Present and accounted for. And those of you who didn't raise your hands, shame on you. That's just a sign of your ungodliness. Okay, that's, that's all that is. <laughs> a tad late. God justifies the ungodly. So here again are the categories. Don't miss it. On one hand, there's the righteousness of God. On the other hand, the ungodly. And never the twain shall meet unless there's an intercessor. Unless there's somebody standing in that gap who can make it okay between the righteousness of God and the ungodly. How is that accomplished? We believe. The one who believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. So what did we read back in Genesis? That Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Paul brings it into the New Testament and he says, the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Consistent theology. From Romans to Genesis, completely consistent theology. Now, by the way, I feel like I need to keep pointing this out every time we see these words. There is one Greek word being used for faith in verse 5. And it's easy for us to, in the English language, think that we're talking about two different things, faith and belief. All you're looking at is the noun form and the verb form of the exact same word. It is pistis and pisteo. In other words, if this were translated correctly, it would say, to the one who does not work but faiths him, a verbal form of faith, the one who faiths in God, who justifies the ungodly, that faith, that faithing, that act of believing in Jesus and believing everything God has said, that becomes reckoned to you as righteousness. Okay, now here's the hard part. So far we've read it. It's clear. The words are really clear. It's such a simple sentence. It's such a simple concept to hold on to. Faith reckoned for righteousness. Easy. But how many of us are willing to cast ourselves out into eternity based on the thin thread of faith in Christ without our works? Every one of us because we're egocentric. Every one of us because we're fleshly humans. Every one of us wants to believe that we did something. I've got something. When God sizes me up, when God judges me, he's going to remember that time that I did that thing. Because that was a good thing I did. And, and that's going to gain me a little extra favor with him when that comes up. No, instead we're supposed to completely ignore, utterly ignore everything we are, everything we did, all our good works... And importantly, he forgets all our bad works. So the exchange is, you forget your good works, he forgets your bad works. And then for faith in Christ, he's willing to give you, account to you, impute to you, credit you with God's own righteousness. And that's why I keep defining it as there's only one thing that's equal with God's righteousness. That's God's righteousness. And to stand in God's presence, you need that level of righteousness. Where are you going to get it? 
he, the only one who has it, has to give it to you. And he will give it to you graciously and kindly in exchange for faith in his son. Now, we're fortunate. We have the Holy Spirit of God inside us inspiring that faith. The world out there that doesn't believe this doesn't have the Spirit of God and as a consequence can't believe this. So they're going to go through the rest of their lives defending the idea that they're just good people and that someday God is going to save all the good people and judge all the bad people and that they're definitely, no matter who they are, no matter how many times they've killed, committed murder or adultery or lied or stolen or anything, they'll still tell themselves, but I'm a good person. I'm a pretty good person. But Paul so far has been leveling the playing field and saying there's none good, no, not one. And because there's nobody good, the only people who can achieve the righteousness of God are the ones that God gives both the faith and the righteousness in exchange for the faith. And the evidence for that is all around you. The evidence of that is everywhere. Tell people, I do. Tell people, you know, uh, you're going to die someday. There's been a lot of death around me lately. And it's just a universal reality that everybody that's born is going to die. And tell dying people, you can have eternal righteousness for faith in Christ. And they will look at you and say, no, I don't believe that. Why? Why wouldn't you believe that? You certainly ought to believe that. That's righteousness from God as a gift. That's eternal life. That's heaven forever. Why wouldn't you believe that? And yet they don't. So it's axiomatic. It's provable on its face that they don't believe it because they can't. Because human beings left to themselves can't believe that, which is why we are so very fortunate that God in his grace has given us that Holy Spirit, that spirit of truth whom Jesus said the world cannot receive. And yet we've received the spirit of truth bringing us to the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and producing in us faith and repentance. And as a result, God gives us righteousness in exchange for the very faith that he has granted us as a gift. That's just gooderer and gooderer. It doesn't get better than that. See, when I say God saved you, I mean, he saved you. I mean, he did everything for you. I mean, he did the whole thing. You did nothing. The only thing you brought to the party was your sinfulness, was your depravity. You brought no goodness to the equation. And then God gives you, as a gift, he gives you his spirit, and he gives you repentance, and he gives you the ability to believe in his son, and then for believing in his son, he gives you the righteousness that he alone has. He saves you from beginning to end, from first to last. He's the one that does the calling. He's the one that does the choosing. He's the one that does the justifying, and he's the one that does the glorifying. And it's all him. So, Paul's theology at this point is demonstrating and proving that that's the way it's always been. That's what's in the Old Testament. As the Jews look back on their progenitor, as they look back on Abraham, Paul is saying, what did Abraham do? Abraham had faith, and God counted it to him for righteousness. Now, another fact that you need to know is that Abraham was given that gift of faith before he was told to be circumcised, before God instructed him that all of his offspring would be circumcised, nevertheless, the righteousness of God was already imputed to Abraham. Now Paul is going to talk about that. Because those who were 
in Rome and circumcised, the Jews in Rome, looked down on the Gentiles, whom they referred to as dogs, and as the uncircumcised, the unwashed, the unclean masses, the ones who had no history and relationship or covenants with God, the ones who didn't have the prophets of Yahweh. They looked down on them. So now Paul is going to say, well, let me ask you a question. If, if Abraham got the righteousness of God in exchange for his belief, when did he get it? Did he get it when he was circumcised? In which case, you guys have an argument. Or was he credited righteousness before he was circumcised? Well, if he was credited righteousness before he was circumcised, then God even justifies the uncircumcised. You get the argument? See where he's going? Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 6. He's going to back up his evidence here that righteousness comes through faith. Verse 6. Just as David also speaks, David writing in the Psalms, he speaks of the blessing that is upon a man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from his works. In other words, I gave you an example from Abraham. Now I'm giving you an example from King David. Why is that important? Abraham had the Abrahamic covenant. David had the Davidic covenant. These are heroes within the Jewish history. These are people they would point back to and say, we are the descendants of Abraham, descendants of David. We, we once were a great and mighty nation, and we had a king who was after God's own heart. And Paul says, both of them believed the very thing I'm trying to convince you of now, which is righteousness comes through faith. David speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Writing, verse 7, Blessed are those whose sins, whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, and whose sins have been Covered, really important word. Remember, last week we talked about the fact that Christ is the covering. Christ is the helisterion. Christ is the mercy seat. He's the capereth. He's the one that covers our sins. Paul picks that language up and says, even David said that our sins would be covered. And blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not Take in to account. Okay, let's take another survey. How many of you would really like it if God never brought up your sin again? Good plan. Good plan. I'm in. How many of you are sick of raising your hands? How many? Okay, never. <laughs> what a good plan. God never brings up your sin. I don't know if you're anything like me. And I hope you're not. I wake up some nights and think about the places I've been and the things I've done. And it keeps me up. It keeps me awake because I'm more aware of my depravity than any of you are. And I'm more aware of my sinfulness than any of you are. And, and I think sometimes, how could God save a wretch like me? Well, the idea that God would never bring up my sins, the stuff that keeps me up at night, the stuff that plagues me, the stuff that worries me, the stuff that makes me think I am unsavable. What if God just never mentioned it? I'd be like a million years into eternity going, I hope that never comes up. <laughs> and yet, here King David said that God was going to cover and not take into account our sin. Okay, so let's look at the equation again. He's not going to bring up our sinfulness. He's not going to take it into account but for our faith, he will place on our account the righteousness of God. How good is that? I mean, when we say gospel, when we say good news, we're talking really, really good news. We're talking about a God who could save 
a wretch like me. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. By the way, I'd have to agree with David there. Yes, that's very blessed. Yeah, if God never brings that up, real, real blessed. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. So, verse 9, is this blessing then only upon the circumcised? Or is it also upon the uncircumcised? That was the big debate. That's what the big difference was in the Roman church. The Jewish contingent and the Gentile contingent wouldn't even meet in the same place. There was tension between those two groups. There was that feeling among the first century Jewish church that that's our Messiah. He came through our promises, our prophets, our scripture, our God, and now Gentiles are going to get the same reward that we get? How is that possibly fair? So Paul asks, if it is then reckoned, if this faith of Abraham is reckoned, how was it reckoned? Is the blessing upon just the circumcised, just the Jews, or upon the uncircumcised, the Gentiles also? For we say, faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. That's the basis of his argument so far. We're saying that righteousness came to Abraham because of his faith. So the big question is, can Gentiles have faith? Because if they can, then they're going to get that same righteousness. And the Jews, again, are going to say, 1,400 years we've been keeping the law. 1,400 years we've been listening to our prophets, and we've been taken into bondage and moved out of our country and back again. We, we have this long history, a couple thousand years, reaching all the way back to Abraham. We've been keeping all the scripture, and we've been keeping the law, and we've been following our prophets. We've been keeping the religion. We've got the temple. We've been doing the sacrifices day in, day out. We are earning a reward, and now you're telling me that Steve gets the same reward we do? How is that fair? How is that fair? How then was it reckoned? When faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness, how was it reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? That's why I said a few moments ago, you have to know the order of events in the book of Genesis. It was before Abraham received the instruction in circumcision. Before that, he was told that he was righteous. And his righteousness was reckoned for faith. How then was it reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Well, not while he was circumcised, but while he was uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision. Remember earlier I said it's a sign, it's a seal. If the Jews, if the offspring of Abraham were all circumcised, that becomes a sign, a seal of what God had done already in establishing Abraham. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while he was uncircumcised. In other words, he didn't achieve righteousness through the work of circumcision. He did the work of circumcision as a sign and seal of the fact that he already had the righteousness. Same equation as I laid out earlier. We don't do good works to get saved. We do good works because we're saved. Paul is saying same thing with Abraham. Abraham was given righteousness and then he did the work of circumcision. But You Jews have turned it all backwards and said, you have to be circumcised to be saved. So you've made the work of circumcision the prerequisite for salvation. Paul here is arguing, no, faith is salvation. The good works follow the faith. 
He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while he was uncircumcised, so that he could be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them. So who is he talking about? He's talking about the Gentiles. The ones who are uncircumcised. But Abraham becomes the spiritual father of even the uncircumcised Gentiles because he was the first one recorded in the Bible who had righteousness imputed to him in exchange for his faith. And now we, Gentiles, have the same righteousness imputed to us for our faith in what God has said to us. And Paul's argument is... That faith is the thing that is saving people, Jew or Gentile. It is not the circumcision because the circumcision was separating Jew and Gentile. But in Christ, Paul's theology again, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, free nor bond, male nor female. God is no respecter of persons. Faith is the deciding factor here. He received the sign of circumcision a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while he was uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them. I say rather than the word them, I would stick the pronoun us right in there, so that righteousness may be reckoned to us, because I want the righteousness of God Reckon to me. And at the same time, verse 12, and he is the father of circumcision, since he is the first one who was circumcised. He's the first one who received the command from God that he have that mark in his flesh, that he have the sign and the seal. So he becomes the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, now follow this, because this is, this is very specific how Paul is putting it. They're not only of the circumcision, which means they're Jews, which means they have the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while he was uncircumcised. Let's see if I can unpack that a little bit. Basically what Paul just did is he broke down two categories within Judaism, which he's going to do much more exactly when we get to Romans 8, 9, 10, 11. He's going to show the difference between what he calls the remnant within Judaism and all Israel, the rest of Israel. And so here he's making a demarcation where he says that Abraham is genuinely the father the true progenitor in a spiritual sense of those Jews who not only have the circumcision, but also have the faith. So whether we're talking Gentile, he's our father if we have the faith. Whether we're talking Jew, he's your father if you have the faith. So again, faith becomes the linchpin to all of it. If you are a Jew and you are circumcised and you are keeping the law, and you're trying to justify yourself, and you don't have faith in Christ, then Paul says, Abraham's not your father. Jesus dealt with that. The, the Pharisees, when he said to them, whom the Son sets free is free indeed, they argued with him and said, well, we're Abraham's seed. We're not enslaved to anyone. They were under Roman dominion at the time, but, you know, hey, we're never enslaved to anyone. Because they really believed that their connection to Abraham genetically was what gave them favor with God. Now Paul is saying it's not just the circumcision. It's not just your descendancy from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You also have to have faith in Christ to be completed in this Jewish religion. So let me read that whole elongated run-on sentence and let's see if it makes more sense now. I'm going to start in verse 10. I'm going to start in verse 9. Genesis 1.1. Never mind. I don't know. 
this blessing the blessing where the Lord won't take your sins into account? Is this blessing where he was accredited with righteousness? Is this blessing then upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while he was uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe, all who have faith, even though they're not circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them. And he became the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while he was uncircumcised. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. In other words, we began today by reading the first telling of the Abrahamic covenant. Key and essential to the Abrahamic covenant is through your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Not just the Jews, but all the families, all the Gentiles, all the nations. Everyone is going to receive the blessing of righteousness from God through faith, not just the Jews. That promise, Paul calls making Abram the heir of the world. Not just the heir of his immediate progeny. Not just his children, but even Gentiles, even families everywhere, even people he's not related to in any way. He is going to inherit the entire world by Paul's language World again, cosmos. We've talked about the word cosmos many times. It doesn't mean the physical planet. and It doesn't mean everybody on the planet. It means not just Jews, not just your immediate offspring. You're going to become the heir of all kinds of people. And the promise to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, that was also made to his descendants. Remember I said it was made to Abraham, then it was made to Isaac, then it was made to Jacob, and then the 12 tribes, and then Judah was pointed out specifically, and then Christ is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So that descendancy leading to Christ, the promise of Abraham and to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world was not through the law. Now, we don't feel that as much sitting here today, 21st century Gentiles, sitting in Smyrna, Tennessee. We don't feel the gut punch of that as much as the first century Jewish law-keeping audience would have felt it. They would have really felt that. Wait, wait, I've been doing the law. 1,400 years we're doing the law. My dad did the law. My grandpa did the law. My great-grandfather did the law. I've been raised in the law ever since I was a child. Keeping my own self-justification is essential to who I am as a person. That's my whole religion. That's my lifestyle. And Paul says the Abrahamic covenant that was promised to Abraham was not given to him through the law. The law didn't come 430 years later. God finally brings Israel out of Egypt and brings them to Mount Sinai. That's 430 years after Abraham had already established, had already achieved having righteousness reckoned to him. So it wasn't through the law. So the keeping of the law cannot satisfy the Abrahamic promise of righteousness through faith. I'm going to say that again, just in case you've tuned out. I spilled a lot of words this morning. But get this, because we are legalists at heart. We want to do stuff. We want to justify ourselves. And Paul says, the promise of righteousness 
through faith is not, does not, cannot be based in the law. It can't be based on what you do. It can't be based on your good works. It's based on this. The promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. I love the phrase, the righteousness of faith. Because you can go through the whole rest of your life desperately trying to achieve your own righteousness. You can go through the rest of your silly little life. That's twice this morning I referred to your life as a silly little life. Apparently you're living silly little lives right now. You can go through the rest of your silly little life desperately trying to be good enough to impress and obligate God. And then you'll die and then you'll be judged. And that won't get you righteousness. Why? Because it's being done by a sinful person, which is why the Proverbs say that the high look, a haughty look, and even the plowing, plowing, just going out doing your work every day, just everyday things, that is sin. As much as a high look, as much as your pride is a sin, just being a sinner is a sin. Just being who you are by nature. When you woke up and opened your eyes this morning, within your first five thoughts, there was enough sin to put you in hell forever. And you think that you, under those conditions, are somehow going to get good enough to obligate God and his perfect standard of holy righteousness? You can't do it. You can't do it. How do you Get righteousness. The righteousness of faith. Faith in Christ's finished work will achieve eternal righteousness. And that, I'm going to say again, is really, really, really good news. Give up on yourself. Just give up on yourself. Take sides with God against yourself. Understand that he, in his absolute authority and sovereignty, can do whatever he's pleased to do. And he is pleased to save you through faith. So agree with him. Get on board with that deal. Give up on yourself and cast all your hope on Christ. Run. Run to him. Grab him for all he's worth. Cling to him. Hold on to him. Do not take him lightly. Do not take him casually. He is the single most important deciding factor in all of life and eternity. You don't take this stuff lightly. Agreed? Agreed. All right. Any questions? Yes, sir, Dwayne. Are you under the impression that we can hear you? No. In verse 9, yeah. and it says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, I've got a lot of people that say that the belief came from Abraham, and then the righteousness was credited to him because he believed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then later on verse 9, it says, Yeah, that's consistent. And certainly when you get into the New Testament, what do you read in Hebrews 12? Uh, Jesus is the author and the finisher of faith, right? Or uh, Paul writing, by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so consistently, where faith is spoken of throughout the New Testament, never once can you find any single phrase that says faith is something that men whip up out of their own mind, imagination. It's always, always spoken of as something that is given by grace, given from God to the people he is actively saving. And then when you go back to Genesis 12, 
God spoke to Abram, he called, and then Abram just walked. Yeah. What you have in Genesis is a record of God speaking to Abram and Abram's reaction, but we're not told what the inspiration for the action was. Right, but then you get to the New Testament, and it does say. And it explains it. So we have to be consistent there. But also, by the way, I think we can say, there were a lot of people in Ur of the Chaldees. And none of the rest of them received the promise and the land and the heritage. So did Abram one day, just out of his own imagination, decide to believe in a God he had never heard from? Or did God come to him first and then Abraham believed while everybody else that was there didn't believe because they didn't hear from God. So once again, you see God being the first cause. You still see God being the instigator of the relationship. Throughout the Bible, it's never humans that instigate the relationship. Make sense? Good question, by the way. Well done, you. Anything else? All right. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.